0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Lisette Barón carvajal Today, I will be talking to the wonderful Dr. Camila Townsend about her award-winning book, Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Welcome, Cami. I'm so excited to have you today. I'm glad to be here. So, Cami, we know each other personally because you are a distinguished professor at Rutgers University, where I'm pursuing my PhD. What listeners may not necessarily know is that you also obtained your PhD at Rutgers. So after you graduated from Rutgers, you were a professor at Colgate University for several years, and then you returned to Rutgers in 2006, where you have been ever since. So tell us more about this professional path of yours one in which you have received prestigious and numerous awards, such as the Guggenheim Fellowship in 2010. How did you come to study Latin American history and what led you to this path in particular?
1: Well, I suppose my path has been rather serendipitous. I did not plan to study Latin America as a young person growing up in New York City in the 1970s. Um, But when I came of age, the Nicaraguans had just had their bottom-up revolution. They had astounded the world in 1971 uh, when they threw out Somoza, a a U.S.-backed dictator. And I, like many American young people, wanted to go and learn from them, figure out what we could about how they had done that, etc. And I ended up living in Nicaragua for a couple of years and teaching seventh graders. And I learned so much. I'm sure I learned more from my students and their families than they ever learned from me. By the time I got back, I knew that I wanted to know more about Latin America. I think it's possible that the personal had something to do with it as well. I think we all end up caring more passionately about issues that touch us personally. And when I was young, in a series of coincidences, I I ended up taking a foster daughter. That had not been part of the plan either. Um, And she was Latin American by birth. And she had been moved to the United States before I ever met her. I had nothing to do with that. But I think perhaps uh, if Carmen had not been in my life, it's possible that my life would have taken a different path. I I don't know for sure. Um, What is certain is that the Nicaraguan revolution caused me to want to know more.
0: Wonderful. I love to hear these different stories that bring scholars to their chosen topics of study. Um, So this book is about the Aztecs, quote unquote, And later we will talk about terminology, but for now, let us talk about the fact that you didn't start your career thinking that you were going to be a scholar of Mexico or the Mexica. So your first book was actually a a comparative project between two very similar port cities in the 1820s and 1830s, Baltimore in the United States and Guayaquil in Ecuador. So what led you from that initial project to this one? that very recently won the prestigious Condil History Prize. Congratulations, by the way. And how And how challenging was it to learn a new set of literature and embark yourself on the study of your beloved Nahuatl, which now you're one of the leading scholars in the United States and the world. So this was, the, just to clarify it to, to our listeners, this is the politically dominant tongue that had become a lingua franca in central Mexico by the time of the arrival of the Spaniards.
1: It's true that my professional path has been a bit circuitous. I did, as I said, come back from, from having lived abroad, wanting to know more about what make what made Latin America tick, and I guess most profoundly uh, where the poverty had come from, because the myths and stereotypes that I had been raised with, uh, that somehow Latin Americans were doing everything wrong while people in the United States did everything right, were so clearly ridiculous. Um, So I ended up doing comparative economic history at Rutgers, and that's what led to the first book that you alluded to. And I thought, that that's what I would do for the rest of my life. But then I I turned to my next project, which was also going to be comparative. And I had become convinced in the first project that it really had, the divergences had very little to do with being settled by Spaniards or Englishmen, that the divergences had more to do with the nature of the indigenous civilizations that were already present. That's what had seemed to be leaping out at me when I did the first project. So I ended up working on two different projects. I wasn't sure if they would be combined into one or would be kept separate about the earliest generations, the the first sort of 20 to 60 years of contact in both North America and and Latin America. uh, And that turned into two books, one about um, Malinche, Malinzi, the, the woman uh, who translated for Cortez, and the other one about Pocahontas, a very similar figure uh, who ended up translating in the Jamestown colony in what is today Virginia. And while I was working on those two books, I came face to face with the existing indigenous language sources from that time period. And then I really got the bug uh, then I realized that is what I want to do for my next project: is f- follow to the extent that I can that path. And it rapidly became clear to me that Nahuatl, the, the what we call the Aztec language, uh, yielded the most written sources through various historical circumstances. The Nahua's were the ones who wrote down the most in their own language. I should say the Nahua's were the ones who wrote down the most using the Roman alphabet, but writing in their own language. So I started by taking a summer course. I wasn't sure where it would lead. I don't think I had a whole lot of confidence in my own ability to learn this language, but I discovered that I was good at it. I'm just lucky that I have a talent for languages. I did nothing to deserve it. Um, But once I realized I could do this and that there were so many sources out there, I knew that that's what I wanted to work on from then on. And so, in fact, I have done less comparative work since and have focused much more on what I can do with these Nahuatl language sources. So I guess the the short answer is it was one step at a time, one detour at a time that led to where I am right now. And I guess I would urge all young people out there to be open to that. I don't mean to fly wildly, that I would advise you to fly wildly from one subject to another, but... If one project seems to lead to another and yet you're gonna to have to learn something new to do it, I think it's a good plan. I really do. At least for me, it has worked out.
0: No, I love that story because precisely it teaches us that, you know, we don't know what can happen and what can be next. So exactly. I, I love that. Um, so let's talk about terminology and get that topic out of the way so we're like, talking on the same terms and it's clear for our listeners what are we talking about when we say words as Aztecs, for example. So you tell us that technically speaking, there were never any Aztecs because no no people ever called themselves that. So this was a word that scholars began to use in the 18th century to describe the people that dominated central Mexico at the time of the Spaniards' arrival. So you you chose to to keep using this This word, even using it in the title, but you introduced other important terms such as Mexica and Nahuas. So, can you explain to our listeners what these words mean and how
1: you chose to use them in the book? Right. I I did use the word Aztec in the title, even though it's something that was invented later, because it's the word that everybody knows and everybody understands. And I didn't want a mystifying title to the broader public. Uh, But the people, that we call Aztecs now, the ones who dominated Central Mexico just before the Spanish conquest, called themselves the Mexica. Uh, So after the introduction, when I explain this to people, I do try to call them the Mexica from then on. It is a bit more complicated because sometimes when we say the Aztecs, we mean not just the people who were winning the wars at the time, but all the people who lived in Central Mexico and even all of Mexico at the time. Well, in that case, we're probably talking about the Nahuas, meaning the people who spoke Nahuat. In that case, what we're referring to are the Nahuas, meaning all the people who lived in that region of Mexico and spoke the Nahuat language. So when I'm talking about everyone who lived in that broader cultural range I will, and spoke that language, I will use the word Nahuas. When I'm speaking about those who dominated the valley, the Mexica and right up to the end of the book, when I'm talking about how those people are remembered and looked back upon now, I will use the word Aztecs, because in truth, we talk about them as the Aztecs. This is a tough issue whenever we talk about Native American history. Uh, For instance, in North America, in this area where I live, the New York City area, everyone knows all about the Iroquois. Well, they don't want to be called the Iroquois. In their own language, they're the Haudenosaunee, but if I walk into a classroom and say, okay, folks, I'm going to tell you all about the sonne, most people will have no idea what I'm talking about. So I do try to introduce subjects by using the terms that we know, that the broader public knows, but then move on to explaining what we should be, the terms we should be using and try to begin to to use that language instead. It's a tough political issue.
0: Yeah, it is. it is a tough issue, but I believe if you, you know, as you do early on in the book, you clarify the terms you use, uh, then it's great for for the readers because then they know what they will expect. Right, right. Um, So in a nutshell, I think we can say that your main purpose in this book is to tell the story of the Mexica from their own perspective, using mostly their own historical sources. So in other words... You propose a narrative that would make sense to the Aztecs of that time, and that they would understand because you reconstructed it to the best of your abilities and what the sources allow you, using what they knew about their own past prior to the arrival of the Spaniards, their their cultural ways of making sense of what was happening to them once this man arrived, and also the ways in which they envisioned the future after it was obvious that these men were there to stay. So can you explain to our listeners why this exercise of telling the story from their sources is important and uh, why it it has been
1: possible to write such a book only until now? Well, in truth, I think much of what has passed for history up until now, when we begin to use more Indigenous sources, has been accurate in a technical sense, that is, traditional historians haven't gotten it wrong in terms of what happened, what the set of events consisted of. The problem is that we haven't had a good way of approaching or understanding what uh, the less well-known actors in the situation, in this case, the indigenous uh, of Mexico, were thinking, or why they did what they did. And this causes us to make major errors of interpretation, you know, the famous example being this whole idea that the Native Americans thought the white men were gods. That's obviously not what they were thinking, and it it's not why the Indians did what they did. But as long as we weren't reading sources that they wrote, it was easy, bluntly, to make stuff up in terms of how we were going to interpret their, their actions and just proceed as if we had real evidence in terms of why we haven't done this until now, well, lots of people had to study the sources. There are Right now, there are about 1.5 million speakers of Nahuatl in Mexico. So this is not a dead language. And you might think more might have been done. The problem is, those are modern speakers living modern lives, usually as farmers. Um, scholars had to Become involved and read these sources in that language because we had to read lots of them. We're the ones who have the time and the training to do that. We had to read so many of them that we could put them in context and make sense of them. When you first read just one set of uh, of annals, one Shupohwali or Nahuatl history, it's hard to understand. It's confusing because it wasn't written with Westerners in mind, it wasn't written with modern people in mind. So, for example, they might say there was a war and then list all the different places that women of different names uh, went to after the war. And you might think at first, what do I do with that? Why are they telling me this? Well, when you've read enough of them, you begin to see uh, that they're telling you how badly they lost the war. Was it just a minor skirmish and they did fine, just a little bruising, or was it a devastating defeat? You can tell that based on whether or not the most high-born noble women are being dragged off as concubines or even as sacrifice victims, or whether they're being allowed to intermarry formally with the enemy afterwards. So you really have to know quite a bit about the range of possibilities in these sources, as well as knowing the language itself, to make sense of them for a modern reader. And that has taken us some time, but I think we're ready now. Yes, we're ready
0: now, and we have your book. <laughs> and, and this book, listeners, is beautifully written. If you have ever read anything Kami has written before, you know uh, her prose is wonderful. It reads almost as literature. I keep telling her this. Um, and, but anyways, before before we get into those beautiful details about the story, beautiful, sad, moving, touching, Uh, many things. Let's talk about the sources, uh, because our listeners may not be familiar with them, and they may want to know more about them. So tell us more about these Nahuatl language annals. Uh, So you have been studying them for about, if I'm not mistaken, two decades, if not more. So what are their characteristics?
1: Right. These are not the codices that we've all seen uh, in insets in our textbooks. Uh, They're not even what are called the mundane sources like the wills or the land transfers, legal records. These are histories, uh, the transcriptions of oral performances of something, a, a traditional genre called the shupohwali. So before the conquest, people would gather together and different representatives of different clans or different lineages would tell their version of, say, the history of a recent war, the history of the last century, Um, and then a representative from another lineage or another clan would follow. Um, And in this way, they would put together all of their versions of the truth, so to speak, until they came up with a a coherent whole that represented the views of different people. It was called the Shu Shupokwali. They ran along a timeline, as it were. Uh, In fact, they used a, a physical, literal, painted timeline as a mnemonic device and so they would cover the, the years in, in order in the same ways that we would. Um, but the kind of things that they talked about would be different. In each year they were interested in what had happened to the to the kings. Um and to the other uh, sort of high nobility they were interested in great and terrible natural events in wars in the reasons for the wars results of the wars etc so anything that would be of great interest to the polity as a whole to the community as a whole they weren't diaries they weren't personal perspectives although you can get a sense sometimes of individual perspectives Uh, from the ways in which they said something, the details that they chose to put in or not to put in. Uh, So a bit of attitude comes through, Um, but mostly these are accounts of what would be interesting to everyone, told from the perspective of different subgroups within the community, putting it all together to to make the whole. If people are interested in these sources, I do have another book called The Annals of Native America, which is really uh, what I call the history of these sources, Fifth son is the history in the sources. That is, what are the stories that we can pull out of those sources? What is the history that they tell us? Um, but if you want to know more about how, these, you know, how this tradition evolved and how it got written down or some versions, some moments of the tradition got written down in the 1500s, what the goals were of the people writing that down, that's kind of a whole other thing. Um, and that's in the book, The Annals of Native America.
0: Yes, so listeners... There you have more books to read <laughs> because Kami uh, has written many, many books, wonderful books. So go and check them out. Uh, but for now, let's talk about this one and let's talk about the story. Let's start with the story. So uh, just to flag it to our listeners, the book is organized chronologically and the first three chapters are devoted to the pre-conquest period. Uh, And chapters 5 and 6 are devoted to the arrival of the Spaniards, uh, covering the years from 1518 to 1522, so a relatively short period of time, but a very important moment, one that was pivotal, as you tell us. And then chapters 6 to 8 deal with the period that followed the conquest, one in which Spaniards increasingly established their power and dominance over what became known as Mexico City and neighboring cities and gradually other regions that were not previously in the hands of the Mexicans. So you start every chapter with a vignette about a single person who once lived, many of them women, which is wonderful, and you do this as an imaginative act, but also as a way to create a narrative thread that brings the chapter together. Uh, These vignettes are beautiful, and here we won't get to discuss all of them, unfortunately. So I invite our listeners to go and and read the book. Uh, But let's talk about the first three chapters. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of history going on here, and we won't get to cover it all. But perhaps just to start by the beginning and with chapter one. So who was Shieldflower? And why did you decide to start with her story to narrate the long history of the Aztecs? So where these men and women came from and why did they decide to settle in what became the city of Tenochtitlan, now known as Mexico City?
1: Shieldflower was the daughter of a Mexica chief in the 1200s, long before the Mexica or the Aztecs had any power. Uh, these were people who were migrating down from the American Southwest, in effect, from, you know, think of New Mexico and Utah. Well, in the 1200s, they had gotten to the, to the Central Valley and several of the sets of annals refer to her shield flower being taken in war and sacrificed um, by the people of Kolwakan. Now, I do think that we know that what the Chupawali tell us for the 20, 40, 60 years before the conquest is true. With a spin, of course, but basically true. However, I'm the first to say that stories that have been passed down literally for centuries from the 1200s can't be taken literally. So after I tell this story as if it were true, a few paragraphs into the book, I confess that this is what the people told their descendants, that these are stories that were passed on. And I ask, I muse out loud, well, you know, why tell the story in in a history book if we're not sure that it happened? In fact, I think we can conclude looking at archaeological evidence and linguistic evidence, it did happen, maybe not exactly as it does in the story that gets passed down, but daughters like Shieldflower, um, daughters of high chiefs, would have been taken in war, were taken in war, and were sacrificed. Um, So we have no reason to throw the whole thing out, but merely to say that it's an apocryphal story that opens us, opens the window, so to speak, into this world uh, and lets us hear the voices and stories coming out of it. We don't have to take literally every single thing that the story tells us. Likewise, I think we can say much the same about the stories of the foundation of Tenochtitlan. The story goes that these wandering peoples ended up settling on the island in the middle of a lake in the very center of the Valley of Mexico because they saw an eagle who was, uh, in a way, their god, Huitzilopochtli, a hummingbird god, was supposed to have taken the form of an eagle. Their god landed on a cactus and, in effect, told them to settle there. That may or may not have happened. But what is true is that right at that time, the people did settle there. Undoubtedly, they did feel that they'd been given omens and directives by various divinities to settle there. I would add, as a pragmatist, a bit of a cynic, that they probably settled there because the land was open. Nobody else had settled there. And there were lots of food sources available in a lake environment like that. Um, So... We can tell the story of the Eagle Landing and the people deciding to found their city there and learn from it without taking it literally. I think we can have our cake and eat it too.
0: Yes. And I believe, after having read several of your books, that sometimes history is about learning the possibilities. You know, we cannot know exactly what happened sometimes, but we can know what was possible and right. this this is a i mean this is a wonderful way of thinking about the past too um, so you deal with a long history of rulers so mostly of, of the mexica but also of other rivaling groups and i must confess sometimes i felt like when i was reading this it was like I was reading Game of Thrones. Yes, <laughs> indeed. It was like, it yes, is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like these royal houses and these power moves, and oh my god! So this is very like, I just I was so imagining this world, um, and this is wonderful. Uh, so let's talk about some of them. We cannot talk about all of them, but in chapter two, you tell us about the the story of Itzcoatl, if I'm pronouncing that you are right. Perfect. Okay or obsidian snake. And his father had been chief, chief of the Mexica for decades, but his mother was an enslaved woman. And it was unlikely that the son of an enslaved woman would rise to power, but he did. He rose to power and he became the king or Tlataoini of the Mexica. And and you also tell us about this other important polity that uh, was Ashka Potzalco and its ruler Tezosomuk. And you explain the importance and challenges poised by one of the most important characteristics of Mexica's social order, polygyny. So can you tell us more about these important characters of your story and why was polygyny so important for uh, Mexica's nobles? What did it mean for, for what we can call now with our modern eyes, the gender order of, of the Mexica?
1: Yes, you're right. That is the fact that Uh, the ancient Mesoamericans were polygynous was very important in a political sense. I don't want to sound like I'm making some sort of a modern uh, Western feminist diatribe against polygyny, not at all. That is, uh, it was a profoundly complementary culture. Men understood they needed women. Women understood they needed men. Uh, The roles of both uh, were were deeply valued and and understood to exist together and that they could only exist together. But all that said, uh, the truth was that after a war, uh, men brought home additional wives. And indeed, even outside of warfare, economically successful men could take additional wives. So noblemen did, as the years went by. Um, and that's fine. <laughs> if if that's the culture you're, you're used to, if that's the culture you grew up in, that's fine. It, it, women in those worlds even joke that it has a lot of advantages. You know, by the time you're my age, middle-aged and tired, you don't mind passing on some of the work of the household to younger women. So uh, my point is not that this is necessarily a bad thing, but it was complicated, because The fact that every high chief or king had multiple wives meant that every high chief or king had multiple sets of sons who were rivals uh, for the future it isn't as though there would be just an understanding that only the eldest son of only the eldest wife would necessarily rule. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, These things were literally voted on among dozens of nobles. Uh, You had to come, you know, the winning son had to come uh, from a polity that was very powerful, that had the backing of other uh, lords, uh, other successful warriors, etc. And it meant that Many of the wars that we have thought of as just being local wars were, if you kind of look underneath, look at these Aztec sources, you learn that they actually were civil wars between bands of brothers, in effect. This was something that became very clear from reading the Annals. And Itskoat brilliantly maneuvered that situation to end up ruling, even though no one would initially have expected that the son of, a, of an enslaved wife would end up being the ruler. He partnered with other sons of disempowered mothers in other in other communities. They banded together and formed uh, an alliance that was kind of unbeatable. a while. Uh, He was really quite a brilliant man. And then as the generations went by, one of the things that the Meshika did really well was work hard to braid together, if you will, the different lineages within the large royal family. One king, for example, would agree, okay, my son will not inherit. Instead, your son, my cousin's son, will inherit. Um, But that boy will marry my granddaughter. Or someone that I am close to so that I can know that in the long run, my immediate family will continue to be represented in the royal lineage. They did really well in that regard and as a result, did not continue to have some of the same civil wars that other communities were still having. And that helped cement their power.
0: Yeah, so uh, what I learned and what listeners and readers will learn is that polygyny wasn't necessarily bad. It brought some advantages to these societies, and we have to learn how to understand it in their own terms, how they saw it. Right, absolutely. Yes, and if I'm not mistaken, it was just only noble families,
1: right? Or was it? Only noble noble families would assume that they're husbands and brothers would have multiple wives. A commoner could take another wife if he was very successful in battle. You had to be wealthy enough um, to have the resources to support multiple wives and the many children that would result. Exactly. So,
0: again, Game of Thrones, but... (laughs) Very much Uh, so. (laughs) But it was interesting because... I mean, sometimes these brothers managed to came to agreements. They sometimes decide that the best ruler was ex brother and
1: not C brother. So that's right. Right. And that sometimes had to do with how much support ex brother had from his mother as opposed to C brother who didn't. So women were involved in these decisions, too, um, although men certainly were at the forefront.
0: Yes, and the family of these women was very important, too, because if she was from an important family, that certainly helped uh, her sons to gain leverage. Or Exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, so we arrived to Chapter 3, which is titled The City on the Lake. And this chapter is more about, let's call it, the golden period of Tenochtitlan. So it's, it's, it's about the Mexica rise as the more powerful group in the Central Valley, and how they forced other polities into their fold, how they managed to secure their power. But unlike the Spaniards that followed, the Mexican never tried to impose, for example, their religious values, nor to homogenize the Basque population that they control. They exerted control in different ways. So can you please explain to our listeners how they control other polities at the time and what did they demand from them? And maybe who were some of their main rivals. Uh, I think it's useful if we talk here about about sacrifice, because this is one of the topics that has kind of fascinated both scholars and also like ordinary folks about the history of the Aztecs. And as you tell us, there have been a lot of misconceptions about sacrifice.
1: Yes, there there really have been. It's a kind of a tragedy in a sense, I think, uh, the, the reputation that the Aztecs and and indirectly their descendants have had to live with. I guess I I want to say that there was a great anthropologist who died recently, Inga Clendinen, some of your listeners will know her work, who wrote about the Aztecs um, in the early 90s. And one of her memorable lines was, this was no Rome. And as she went on to explain, what she meant was, unlike the Romans, the Mexica did not demand that people accept their gods, join their army, enter into their political bureaucracy, etc. There was no effort made to homogenize. Instead, it was more of a shakedown. (laughs) That is, uh, the Mexica Mexica leaders would send representatives to approach a new town uh, that had either agreed to join or had just been defeated in war, and would tell them what their tribute payment was to be. uh, If they met that tribute payment, they would be left alone. Even the old royal line could continue to rule. If they didn't, things would get very bad very quickly. The royal line, the royal family would be smashed. Uh, The tribute payments would go up. Maybe they would be asked to give humans uh, sacrifice victims to be sacrificed in the religious ceremonies in Tenochtitlan, But if you did agree, you could continue your life pretty much as it was, although you had to pay taxes to the Aztecs. Um, As you mentioned, Lisette, this is going to change after the Spanish come and heavy expectations are placed on the people to learn the colonizers' language, change their religion, etc. But before the conquest, people were pretty much free to continue as they had. And in fact, some have even argued that it was almost advantageous to join because there was a a lot of long distance trade that was made possible by the existence of the empire trade, which archeologists tell us benefited many people. Uh, standard of living was good. On the other hand, you will not be surprised to hear that many ethnic groups did not want to join. They simply wanted nothing to do with this, did not want anyone interfering in any way with their sovereignty. And they did fight back hard. And in fact, this is where human sacrifice comes in all ancient peoples, archaeologists think, around the world at some point practice human sacrifice. Certainly that is true in Mesoamerica. Uh, prisoners of war were sometimes sacrificed. That was a fact of life. What the Mexica began to do, though, was sacrifice not just one or two prisoners of war after a battle, um, but dozens. As their power grew, they used this as a terror tactic. There's one account in which they actually say Um, we actually used to bring people from the outskirts of empire, from places that we had our eye on and we wanted to conquer, bring them to see some of the more horrific sacrifices and then send them home because they would be so terrified they would tell their people we should just join the empire and not put ourselves at risk for being collected as sacrifice victims for those games, for those ceremonies. Um, So there was a religious kernel, There were real religious beliefs at the heart of it, but it then became a power play. We can think of similar instances in which Christianity or Islam, although coming from real devotion, then becomes a tool of the powerful who are trying to terrorize others. Um, And the same thing happened in in Mesoamerica. Yes.
0: And the fact that we understand it doesn't mean that, you know, we accept it like, It's just how things were in the past. So we might as well, again, try to understand the past in its own terms. Right. Um, So now we get to part of the history that many of our listeners may have heard most about or are probably most interested in, which is the arrival of the Spaniards. So you have worked on this topic extensively before. And uh, chapter four there you use a vignette, and that vignette is the story of Malinche, uh, a woman who you know very well because you wrote a biography about her, as you told us at the beginning of this interview. So if listeners find themselves fascinated by these women and haven't read the book, they should go because it's wonderful. So, you know, what happened when the Spaniards arrived to the eastern shores of what we now know as Mexico? What did its present ruler... Moctezuma II decide to do. As you told us already, certain scholars and you know people believe that the Mexica thought that the Spaniards were some sort of gods or deities, but you alongside other scholars have proven this to be wrong. So what did they really think about these strangers that came in this? they, they, they didn't they have never seen this type of boats before. Uh, uh, so what, what, And what was Malinche's role in all of this? What was the role of Tlaxcala, which was a longtime rival of the Mexica in this whole story?
1: Well, we can't be 100% certain what all of them thought, but the sources seem to indicate that, uh, that the Mexica were aware that these were people from a distant land. Uh, they used the same word for the Spanish ships as they used for their own canoes, but then said "But they were bigger and used blankets and cloths to catch the wind to move faster. So they seemed to be recognizing what the, some of the technological differences were, but not be blown away by them. Moctezuma very clearly perceived them as a danger and, and offered tribute. He wanted them to agree to stay away if he made payments to them, the way many of his subordinated peoples made payments to him. Uh, and he was distressed when the Spaniards rejected that, The divisions within Mesoamerica then became crucial uh, for the Spaniards' victory. The the Spaniards allied with people like the Tlaxcalans, who, as you said, were longtime rivals of the Aztecs, and that is part of what made their victory possible. There were other factors too, and we can talk about that, but certainly the fact that the Spaniards were able to take advantage of the fissures within Mesoamerican society was very important. And it wasn't just that certain states, certain polities were willing to ally with them, but even that certain individuals were. So the woman, Malinsin, whom you mentioned, for instance, had been born in one of these territories that were under attack, under threat by the Mexica. And in that, the, the sort of the, the, the jockeying, the horse trading that took place, the, the, the dealings, the peace dealings, the, the war threats that took place, She, who was the daughter of a concubine, not a powerful woman, although she was also the daughter of a chief, ended up being traded away and was sold into Maya territory. And the Mayas gave her to the Spaniards. So she had lived as a slave for many years. She was only too happy to work as a translator for Cortes. Uh, The Aztecs were her enemies. They were the ones who had caused her to be sold into slavery. So you have city-states like Tlaxcala, you have individuals like Malintzin who had reason to resent the Aztecs and who were perfectly willing to work with these outsiders to try to bring them down. You had other local people who were very close to the Aztecs, to the Mexica, whose royal families were tightly intermarried with them and who staunchly defended them. It wasn't uh, an all-or-nothing situation. There's a sort of myth out there that All the other indigenous people took one look at the situation and went flocking to join the Spaniards. It wasn't that simple by any means, but many of them did. And that was part of the key to the Spanish success.
0: Yeah, and maybe here you can briefly talk about technology, because I know this is such an important part of your argument about how indigenous peoples perceive right away or after seeing the Spanish for a little while that they had. Uh, superiority in terms of technology, that they've never, you know, they've never seen this type of weapons before, etc.
1: Right. For the last 30 years or so, I would say since uh, the great multicultural wave of the 1980s, scholars have understandably been really loath to talk about this. Uh, There's been a, a sort of wishful thinking that really, technologically speaking, the two sides were equal. You know, for instance, it's very difficult to aim a cannon on a ship. But it's very easy to aim um, a, a bow and arrow. So it, it, we've been able to avoid the subject in some ways, but I think that that avoidance, although it was understandable in its origins, has ended up doing a lot of damage. We end up leaving the indigenous people really on their own to lose without much good explanation. We can find places where they win, but of course, altogether uh, from the far northern reaches of Canada down to Tierra del Fuego, ultimately they will lose. If we don't allow into the picture the technological differences, they're left with a very painful past and the descendants still live with that. What did we do wrong and why is is the subtext. In fact, if we follow the literature from archaeologists and plant biologists... It's become clear since the improvement of radiocarbon dating techniques that occurred in the 90s uh, that there was a constellation of protein-rich plants in the, the a- ancient Southwest Asia, what we call the Fertile Crescent now, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, that was unmatched uh, by the constellation of plants available anywhere else. So farming started for a good reason there, and then it, it spread, it was borrowed by uh, the ancient Chinese and the ancient Europeans. In any event, this gave them a a multi-millennium advantage. Uh, The longer a people are sedentary, the more their population grows, the more the microbes uh, grow, because it's farming and living with animals that leads to a plethora of diseases. Uh, The more technological inventions are varied uh, because you have a, a leisured class and you have division of labor. If we allow that into the picture, if we allow ourselves to see that farming and fully sedentary living started at least five thousand years earlier in the old world than the new, suddenly a lot of things make sense. Suddenly, the the, the powerful and fascinating and brilliant Aztecs are coming face to face. Not with their equivalence in terms of the amount of time spent farming, that would be, say, the ancient Sumerians or the ancient Mesopotamians. Instead, they're coming face to face with Renaissance Europe, which has had this, you know, they're the cultural heirs of 5,000 years of old world sedentary farming, inventions, population growth, etc. I think it's important to take that into account Interestingly, in the Aztec language sources, they seem to take it into account, although, of course, they don't know why. Uh, they, They don't have the radiocarbon dating techniques available to them, but they do say, we have a clear difference here in these regards. I wonder why that is. What's impressive to me is that they knew that that was what needed to be explained. So if they knew it, I think we can allow ourselves to reckon with it. It sure wasn't because of any inferiority on their part, not at all.
0: Yes, and here we we get to probably one of the most, I don't know, sad chapters of the book, which is chapter five. And here I want to read the little vignette with which you start the chapter because, you know, we can only cover perhaps this one and this one is so moving and touching and I believe it's very timely. So I, I'm going to read it. So, the smell of the burning bodies was rank in the air, but worse was the smell of the mikatsintli. the poor dead women who had not been moved for days. She lay where she was because there was no one left in the palace strong enough to cope with the problem. The sickness, like nothing ever seen before, had struck not long after the unwelcome strangers had been forced to leave the Noctitlan. Now... Moctezuma's young daughter looked at her sisters lying with her on the soil sleeping mats. They were still alive. When they looked back at her, their dark eyes reflected her own terror. Their faces, their arms, all their parts were covered with the vile sores. Not like before in the fevered haze when she thought she knew they were all perishing, all disappearing. It was the same words. So, okay, when I read this, it's it's very you know, it's very sad and moving, those words. So the one speaking here is, or, you know, the woman that is, it's Moctezuma's daughter. So what happened here? And what was the role of smallpox in this process? This is, you know, we're going through a pandemic.
1: So so this is very timely. It is indeed. And yes, the diseases were one element of the sort of panoply of power advantages that accrued to the Europeans because of their millennia of sedentary life of farming, they had been living with their with their animals and thus exchanging viruses uh, with other species. And we've learned recently how dangerous that can be. Um, and because they were sedentary, they were permanent long distance trade routes that also were millennia old. So uh, there was a, a long history of exchange, which had in fact also then encourage the exchange of disease. This then becomes one of the factors that helped the Spaniards, that helped the Europeans. By no means the only one. There were significant defeats experienced by Indigenous peoples in areas even before the first epidemic arrived. But certainly in this case, the smallpox arrived along with the battles you will, literally in the same two-year period between 1519 and 1521, and were part and parcel of the destruction of Tenochtitlan. The diseases also hit the Tlaxcalans and all the indigenous allies with brutal force. Uh, So I, I want to emphasize that it really wasn't just the disease. During the worst of it, when the Tenochtitlan people, the Mexica people, could not fight, the Tlaxcalans were in the same situation. Um, But nevertheless, I think we would all agree that in the big picture, this was one of the factors that became uh, an advantage for the Europeans. They themselves had immunities. Those who had not been killed by smallpox as young children were immune from it. Um, So they could continue to operate special forces style, if you will, without themselves succumbing to the disease that was killing so many of the people around them.
0: Yeah. And I believe this. Points through us. I mean, right now we don't need a reminder, but how important disease, um, health, dying is to the stories we are telling. Um, so we arrive to the final three chapters. And these chapters deal with the post conquest period, if you will. So uh, in chapter uh, six, I believe, uh, you deal with the early days. So what happened? in these early days? What happened with the royal family? So how was the city governed? Who governed the city? And what was the role of the Franciscans in this period?
1: Because they are very important for the story. Yes, it's very interesting. It's absolutely true that in the first generation, the Spaniards were only able to govern effectively because they maintained or supported the power of the indigenous nobility the royal family in Tenochtitlan, and high nobles in each of the communities all around. Through them, they governed the people. Through them, they demanded taxes. Through them, they proselytized. Without the indigenous nobility, they could not have managed to do what they did as quickly as they did. Some might say, well, why didn't the indigenous nobility fight back? Why did the they agree. Well, many of them did fight back. Many of them were recalcitrant or did refuse, and they were brutally punished. So this, the Spanish were absolutely willing to use violence. They only needed to apply it sparingly in a sort of surgical way to make the point here and there, and then the local nobility got the idea. They were also able to, they, the local nobility were able to sp- Bear their own people's lives by cooperating efficiently rather than resisting, and they learn that quickly too. In all of this, ironically, perhaps the Franciscans come out smelling pretty good. They become the good guys. I understand. Believe me, I understand the modern perspective on missionary work that exists in uh, that exists among academics. We're not wrong to resist the notion that it's. Deeply painful um, and wrong headed to insist on imposing one's own religion. But the Franciscans did most often, not always, but most often play the role of trying to temper the demands of many of the secular Spanish authorities. They themselves were very ambitious, curious, smart, interesting guys. Those were the people who became priests in those days. There was no genuine insistence on celibacy, I should mention, too. I mean, in theory, yes, but everyone understood that that priests were not really celibate. Um, so there wasn't the same kind of barrier to ch- making that life choice. So many wonderful guys became um, friars or priests, and they played a crucial role in teaching the alphabet to people in villages across Mexico who then took it home and used it to write down their own traditions in their own language. It's because of those priests and friars, in other words, that we have all these marvelous Nahuatl sources. The English up in the North did not do that. And as a result, we do not have these wonderful sources. So as objectionable as missionaries appear to us now, we gotta keep in mind that it is in fact, thanks to them, uh, that as much was preserved of Nahuatl culture from pre-conquest days, as has been.
0: Yes, and here we're going to skip the following chapter just because we're kind of running out of time.
1: Right, I just saw that.
0: It's okay. I mean, it deals with the indigenous-led protests that occurred in the 1560s, so if our listeners are interested in that, they can go and check that out, that chapter. But let's talk about the last chapter, which is titled The Grandchildren, and actually deal with this indigenous people that learn to write because of this Franciscans or the sons of these children that learn with the Franciscans. So here you talk a lot about a man that you seem to admire, Chimalpine And, and, and and here the chapter is very, it's also very sad. The vignette you start with, which is with this execution of 28 black men and seven black women. So, this indigenous historian we can call it today with our with our words wrote about this event and he wrote about the history of his time and his people. So how did you know how did he manage to write this story what what the relationship between the enslaved Africans and indigenous people here in I think this is the early 17th century so what? What can you tell us about that
1: last chapter of your book? Right. chimalpain is the most fascinating guy and, and indeed um, one of the most important sources for the whole book, for, for my book. He was baptized as a child, a raised Christian, and in fact worked for a Christian church in Mexico City, although he himself came from the town of Chalco. Sometimes people who read his work in modern times, are a bit disappointed. They want him to have been angrier at the Spanners than he seems to have been. But we have to remember that in that time, to be a Christian was to be an equal soul in the eyes of God. That is clearly what appealed to him about the religion. He comes close to saying as much. It also seems to have fit his temperament. The idea of the peace that Jesus brought seems to have been an idea that he liked Also, if you read between the lines, he was angry. He makes some rather snarky comments about the Spaniards when he wants to, and he always says, when one man is particularly evil, uh, that God will judge him. He is convinced that some of the worst Spaniards are going straight to hell. So, within the context in which he lived, he was a radical. He was somebody who believed deeply in the importance of his own people and of their past and wanted us all to remember it. And for that reason, he wrote it all down. And thank goodness he did.
0: Yes, thank goodness he did, because we have this his wonderful uh, work. And then we have now your book that can tell us a little bit about this history. Um, so this is the last question I'm going to ask you about the book. And- it is a very, it's a question I usually like to end my interviews with. And you talk about this both in the introduction and the conclusion. So why is this history important for us in the present? Maybe some listeners think that this is a too distant past or one that resembles little uh, to the present. But as you tell, you tell us, this, the descendants of the Nawas are here today. In a way, we are the product of this world all of us who are here in the Americas. So why is this history important for them, for the descendants of the Nawas, but also for the rest of us who don't consider ourselves indigenous or with indigenous descent? So why? Why is this history important?
1: Right. I think it is important for all the descendant communities, literal and figurative. Certainly, it's, I think, very painful that so many modern day indigenous people live with the Burden. I guess the psychological burden of their ancestors' loss and live with the disparagement that comes from others related to that loss, if they knew more, if all of us knew more about what caused that loss and all of us knew more about the extraordinary dignity and cleverness, even brilliance with which the Aztecs and others responded to the threat, I think it would help. As for those of us, like me, bluntly, who are not descended from Indigenous peoples, well, I think not knowing much about the the figurative ancestors of the defeated allows us to continue to imagine rather silly things, things that are flattering to the conquerors, to the colonizers. The idea of the white gods is just one example. There are more subtle ways in which we imagine that somehow we are more important or more deserving based on what happened before. And the sooner we can get over all of that, the better for all concerned, I think, as modern political events certainly seem to indicate. In any event, I hope readers learn a lot and find it eye-opening. That is my wish.
0: Oh my God, definitely. Readers, trust me, you will find it eye-opening and you will enjoy it and for specialists, there's also an appendix with where you discuss a little bit with the sources. Uh, there's a lot in the footnotes for people who want to know more. So this is for our general audience, but also for specialists. So before I let you go, just tell us what
1: you're working on right now and what are your projects for the future? Well, I will not abandon the Aztecs. I am going to come back to them. But right now, actually, I'm working on a project involving the Lenape, or Delaware Indians, who lived in the New York area where I live and who then were pressured to move west and whose descendants now live in Oklahoma, where the tribe uh, is known as the Delaware. So I'm working on some texts that exist in the Smithsonian and with which almost nothing has been done. Uh, texts that are stories that reveal something about their beliefs and their religion. I'm hopeful that it will be of interest to people both here in the New York area, but also to people out in Oklahoma. In any event, when I'm done with that, I'll circle back to the Aztecs and maybe ask me again in a year, Lisette, what I'm going to do next. That's a big decision to be made.
0: Definitely. I will. And I'm sure our listeners and Your future readers will look forward to what you write next. So thank you, Kami, for this
1: wonderful interview. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun.